Alright, last week I wasn't here, Norman was, and what he told me, uh, I don't know if that's totally accurate now that I talked with some of you, um, he covered chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Mainly that is the ram, and then the goat, and uh, I guess the two horns of the ram, the one horn that broke off, that broke into, that split into four horns, in um of the goat but since I think some of us weren't here and I wasn't here and I want to have this on the recording I'm just going to go over it briefly a review of the first two creatures and the introduction to this chapter and perhaps cover a few things that Norman didn't cover so let's just begin we're in Daniel chapter 8 welcome haven't seen you for a few weeks Okay, we're in Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Can someone read verse 1 for me? In the third year of the king, Belsardus the reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. Okay, I like, I like how that version puts it. It makes it very clear. This is what the King James says. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. So what, the, what does this verse say about the vision? It, wasn't, it doesn't say it was repeated, but it happened after a previous vision. And it's pretty easy to um, you know, conclude that it's talking about the vision of chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. And in chapter 8, this happens in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. So Daniel himself, he's saying, this is a vision that came after the first. This is a vision that I received after the first vision that I received. So you can say, we can say, that chapter 8, the vision of chapter 8 is part 2, or it is a sequel, or it is a a next part or a next chapter of a greater picture that was begun in chapter 7. Now why is this important? It's simply this. Chapter 8 is a repetition of the same history that took place in chapter 7. However, it's enlarged or there are details that are brought to light that was not in the previous chapter. So it's the same story told, so to say, in a different angle. So we shed different light. We see different details, different things that came from, that came from the same history. Thank you. And this, we can further understand this by something that you can't see in the text, but something that we know, that we can look up. That is that we remember in our study, I don't know if some of you were here for that, I know some of you were, in chapter 2, let's just look there, I'd like to give you the specific verse, chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever, tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Now, Beginning in verse 4, this is very interesting. 
beginning in verse 4 all the way until the end of chapter 7, 28, the 28th verse of chapter 7, that section of the book of Daniel was written in Aramaic. It was not written in Hebrew. It was written in Aramaic. That's the language of the Chaldeans. Aramaic is. Yeah. That's the, if you look it up in like um, a Bible program, or if you look it up in like Strong's Concordance in the back, all the words in between those verses, it'll tell you in Aramaic means, or in Aramaic, it is this word. It's not Hebrew. Now, in chapter 8, it switches back to being written in Hebrew. Now, what's so significant about that? Before we even touch on that, something related. Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, what is one of the greatest similarities? Now, what were the kingdoms represented as in both of these, in both of these chapters? Beasts, exactly right. But now, what are the differences between the beasts in chapter 7 and chapter 8? You remember now, chapter 7, we see a lion with eagle's wings, bear with three ribs in his mouth that's raised up on one side. We see leopard with four heads and four wings of a fowl. And we see a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, that devoured in pieces and stamped the residue with its feet thereof and had iron teeth and brass claws and all, all, all of this stuff. But in chapter 8, the beasts were a ram and a goat. What are the differences between the beasts of chapter 7 and chapter 8? More powerful? Okay. Now let me try to narrow things down a little bit. What did they eat? Right. Simply put, right. What you said, both of you were right. In chapter 7, they were carnivores. Chapter 8, they're herbivores. Or, let's put this even simpler. One, they're predators and they're unclean animals. And the other one, they're prey and they're clean animals. To break it down even more, in chapter 8, a ram and a goat, they're creatures that are used for the sanctuary service for the Hebrew people. They're clean animals, both of which represent a religious activity or the religion of the Jews. So, looking at the language difference, chapter 7 was in Aramaic, chapter 8 is in Hebrew, chapter 7 it used unclean predators as symbols of the nations, and chapter 8, clean herbivore, sanctuary, sacrifice, animals to represent the kingdoms. So now, what's so significant about all this? Now, this is what I read in the book called Daniel Revelation by Uriah Smith. The history between chapter 2 and chapter 7 was of particular interest to the political pagan nations. That's why it's written in their language. So Daniel, he wrote it in their language so that it could be easily distributed and shared amongst the pagan nations and the political powers of the time. But in chapter 8, it's written in Hebrew. And typically, when it's written in Hebrew, it is directly spoken to or given for God's people. Many times in the uh, Gospels, it'll say, which is translated, the Hebrew word is such and such, which is translated such and such. 
those times you pay special attention because it has special significance for the Jewish people. You especially see that a lot, I believe, in the book of Matthew. It's the same thing here. It's written in Hebrew from here on out. Chapter 8 to chapter 12 is written in Hebrew because it's specifically intended for God's people. So in chapter 7 and chapter 8, same history, but one is primarily for the secular political mind. It is dealing more with the secular events of the world. But now in chapter 8, we can expect in the same history, same sequence of events, that God is going to bring out issues and things that pertain more to His people and His religion. So, that's Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. Now let's just go briefly through the two beasts, the ram and the goat. Let's look, let's read verse 3 and verse 4. Can someone read those two verses? of the descriptions here it says he had two horns they were both high but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last those are representing the two branches of government well let's just look in verse 20 Daniel 8 verse 20 first if someone can read that for us that would be great the ram which you saw having two horns they are the kings of Media and Persia okay the Bible's real clear it tells us the ram is Medo-Persia. And the two horns are the kings of Media and then the king of Persia. And Persia came up last. At first, they were just an ally to the more powerful nation of the Medes. But they came up afterwards and they usurped almost the authority of the Medes and they became the predominant power. Thus, one horn was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. And then, verse 4, it says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward. We remember in chapter 7, the bear had three ribs in his mouth, representing the three nations that it conquered. There was Lydia in the north, Babylon to the west, and Egypt to the south. These were three nations that were conquered by this ram. And no beast could stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will, and became what? Became great. Remember that word. Put that in, in, the, in your minds. Ram. I guess nobody got that. Um, but we'll come back to that for a mom- in, in a moment. Let's read verse uh, 5. Unto verse, let's, yeah, verse 5 to verse 8. So we see a ram, 
or a ram and a goat is coming from the west. So this goat comes from the west of the whole earth, west of the whole earth, touched not the ground. So this goat basically was flying. That's how fast it was moving, and had a notable horn between his eyes. Let's look quickly in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 8. Could someone read that? In the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Okay, thank you. So the goat had one notable horn between his eyes. And that one horn is called the first king. And there came this goat. Did I say ram? Anyway, goat came from the west. The face of the earth came and basically just demolishes the ram. Breaks his two horns. It has no more power. It becomes the reigning power of the earth. Okay, simple enough. The first horn is... The king, the first king, which we know is the king Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, obviously, we know he conquered the world in just a rapid succession. In just a few years, by the time he was 33 years old, he already conquered the then known world. But, very interesting, Alexander called himself, he called his son. His son was Alexander Aegis. I don't know how to pronounce the word. A-E-G-U-S. And that means son of the goat. And actually the, the Macedonian people, they were called the, I actually wrote this one down, Aegeadae, which means people of the goat. A-E-G-E-A-D-A-E. This is specifically a name that they called themselves. And I, I looked it up. I tried to find it. The Aegean Sea. It's right next to Macedonia and Greece. And uh, the word Aegean got the root from the word goat, based on my estimation. So the kingdom of Greece here is not, you know, you, you can't miss it. It's so clear, you just can't miss it. But that's pretty interesting. But now, this is what it says. Verse 8. Therefore, the he-goat waxed what? Verse 8. The beginning part. Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great. Now, stick that in your memory bank, and we'll come back to that. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Now, this is even more interesting. The Bible specifically says when this horn would be broken. It says when the horn is strong, then it will be broken. It was at the peak of Alexander, Alexander's reign that he died. He drank what's called a Herculean cup of wine and he died because he overdrank. So the Bible is true. It specifically says when the horn is at its peak, then it will break. But now the next part makes it even clearer without a shadow of a doubt what, that the Bible is true. It says, for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Now this is particularly interesting why. Because if Alexander the Great's power ceased, what would prevent there to be five kingdoms, or six, or ten? 
the Bible specifically, specifically says it will divide into four in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And then you remember the dreadful beast in chapter, in chapter 7, it had ten horns. It divided specifically into ten. So the Bible is so precise in its numbering and that it's, it's just, it just proves its infallibility that there would be only four. But now, notice it says, toward the four winds of heaven. Now what does that represent? Four winds. Let me ask, well let me just put it this way. What directions did this, these four horns grow? Every direction. Or we can say it grew to the north, south, east, and the west. Right? So these four horns is sprouted out growing to the north, south, east, and west. That's where these four horns were directed. And looking at the history, that's exactly what happened. The four generals, we covered this before in chapter 7, but let's just go through it briefly again. Chapter 7, the leopard with four heads, similar. At four divisions. There was Cassander, which these are four generals of Alexander's army. There's Cassander, and he ruled what's called the west portion of the Macedonian and Greek peninsula. And then there was Lysimachus, who ruled the north. And then there was Ptolemy, uh, often related with Egypt, because that was his kingdom in the south. And then there was Seleucus, who ruled Syria, the kingdom to the east. So these were the four divisions to the north, south, east, and west, and these three, or these four generals that became their kings. And this key growth, it waxed very great. Okay, so there we have it. The Bible is remarkably clear. It, it sounds almost as though God is trying to want us, God just wants us to skim through the ram and the goat, you know, Medo-Persia and Greece, and God just gave us enough detail to establish our trust in His Word so that we will understand and we will want to study deeper in the things that are following. Because God just gives us the answer. In the, we just look at the interpretation. God just tells us the names of these countries. I mean, it doesn't get any easier than that. So now, we need to think now as we take the next step. Because this is where things get tricky. This is where things get a little bit more complicated. And that is beginning in verse 9. But now, actually, before we go any farther, let me explain what I'm doing in this Bible study. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, is the vision proper. That's the vision that was actually given to Daniel. And from 15 onwards is the explanation. Remember, chapter 7 is divided in half. The first half of the chapter, 14 verses, was the, the vision, and the last 14 verses was a description, or it was an explanation of what was given in the first half. Similar picture here. So what we did, we looked at the ram, then we looked at the end the interpretation, what is the ram? We looked at the goat, looked at the end of the chapter, what is the goat? So now we're going to look at the vision, we're going to look at some description of this next portion, which is called the little horn, and then we're going to jump to the end of the chapter again and see what is the interpretation of this little horn. Okay? And we're not going to be able to look through everything, all the description of the little horn, because that takes the majority of this chapter. But we will touch on it next week. So let's begin in verse 9. Let's read verse 9, 10, and 11. If I could have a volunteer. Out of one of them came another horn, which 
started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the fairy hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the hosts. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of the Buddhist sanctuary was brought low. Okay. We're going to focus specifically on verses 9, 10, and the first part of verse 11. So this little horn. This little horn comes out of one of the four horns. Now before we take the step into really breaking down the description, based on what we studied in chapter 7, or based on your previous knowledge of chapter 7, after the kingdom of Greece, what comes next? the kingdom of Rome. Now, would we want to, I mean, it would be logical for us to expect that the kingdom of Rome would come somewhat after, just sometime after the kingdom of Greece, correct? And also in the chapter 7, we notice that the, what was the majority of attention given to, what portion of the vision was more description given to than any other part? That's right, the fourth beast that had the little horn sitting on it. You remember that. So looking at, looking at the sequence of events, in chapter 2, what was the most primary, what was the area in the statue, the image, that was given the most description? Was it near the top or the bottom of the image? Near the bottom of the image. And then we came to chapter 7. And we went through the same history, but where was more description given? At the beginning or at the end of the vision? At the end. So now, when we come to chapter 8, based on the principle of history repeats and also repeat and enlarge, what can we expect at the end of the vision? God is going to give more detail on this specific area that He has been just building up in the past. So we are expecting that this will not be something out of the ordinary, but that God would continue in His way of interpretation and prophetic revelation. So we will look at this with that in mind. So the little horn, first of all, it comes out of one of the four horns. This tells me one of several things. It comes from one of the four horns, but it is not one of the four horns because it is differentiated as a little horn that grows out of one of the little out of one of the other horns this must be a separate power it must be a power that is different or another king almost you can say as the king of that horn that it came out of now you must be wondering why is that so significant because i'm just going to explain this real briefly I don't want to go into too much detail, but there is two major understandings of this little horn power. The first of which uh, is that this little horn is a king, an actual man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived sometimes, sometime in the period of history between you know, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, in that period of 400 years. 
And he was a king that came from, I believe, Macedonia. So he came out of one of those horns. And he went to the city of Jerusalem and he wreaked havoc. And for a time, he shut down the temple and its service. So the people say that this must be Antiochus Epiphanes. There's a lot more detail about this, but I don't want to spend too much time on that. However, like I was saying, he was a king of one of these four horns. He was a king of the horn that we said was to the west. So this man was actually the king represented by the horn that grew to the west. He could not be the little horn that grew out of that nation because he was that horn. You understand what I'm saying? So that's why I made that point. But also, this little horn, in verse 9, it said, He which waxed what? Exceeding great. So have you seen the, have you seen the progression here? The ram waxed great. The goat waxed very great. And then the little horn power waxed exceeding great. I mean, looking at this, logically speaking, that means this little horn power must, it simply must, be greater than the previous nation. Now, people say, but it's called a little horn. That's the name little horn. But that does not necessarily mean that this power is less powerful than the other horns. You remember in chapter 7, if we say that the little horn is not that powerful, is a little horn, therefore it must be the least of the nations, then we're in real problem here because of all the things that the little horn did. It blasphemed God, spoke great words, sought to change time and laws, wore out the saints, all these things that none of the other ten horns did. So just the term little horn, don't let that stump you. It is not to say that it is less in terms of power and significance. It's just a term. And perhaps it could mean land area, I don't know. But the little horn, simply that's the term. And the little horn waxed exceeding great. Now it says toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Now based upon this, where did this which of the four horns did the little horn grow out of? You can just picture in your mind's eye. The four horns they're stretched north, south, east, and west. And this horn is going south. And then he's going east towards the pleasant land. It's either north or west. It's either the horn to the north or the horn to the west. Because if it's a southern kingdom, there's no kingdom to the south of it. If it's an eastern kingdom, there's no kingdom to the east of it. It must be the north or the west. Now, I'm not going to, you know, that's all, I'm just going to leave it at that. It grows out of either the west or the northern horn. Very interesting, just to plant a bug in your ear. When you come to Daniel chapter 11, there is a contention between the king of the north and the king of the south. So if you understand chapter 8, it will help you to better understand the king of the north and the king of the south in chapter 11. But we're not going to talk about that. Just to plant that in your ear. Next, it said it waxed great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Now what is the pleasant land? Any guesses? Glorious land. Sure. Let's look at a few verses. Let's first look at Psalms 106, verse 24. 
actually. Let's look at... Let's begin in verse 21 to verse 25. That will give you some context as to what this verse is talking about. So verse 21 to 25. So based on this context, what is the pleasant land? I thought I heard something. Canaan land. Or we can simply say the promised land. Or the, or the, the land of promise. It is the, in some verses, it's translated as the land of desire. Pleasant land is translated land of desire. So this is simply Israel. The pleasant land is the nation of Israel, geographically, the kingdom there, Judea and Palestine. There are a couple more verses, but I think that, that shows it pretty clearly. And um, we don't have much time. So this little horn power, back to Daniel 8. This little horn power grew great. It went to the south, to the east, and also to the pleasant land. So this power is specifically mentioned for the purpose of explaining what its relation is to God's people. This is this makes sense compared, you know, based on what we mentioned earlier about this chapter being more specifically for his people. So this power comes to the pleasant land. And verse 10 says, and it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. So this little horn waxed great to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host of the stars. So now what does this remind you of? Does this remind you of any any place in the New Testament that mentions something similar to this? Revelation, Revelation exactly. Let's go to Revelation 12. That's where it's found. Revelation 12, verse 4. Actually, let's begin in verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. Okay, this verse here has dual application. And this is very important to grasp. Let me try to explain this as simply as possible. In verse 9 of chapter 12, who is this dragon? Based on verse 9. The devil, or Satan. But in verse 4, it says that this dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. That child we know is, is Jesus the son of God and he was about to be born and, and this dragon and a beast also represents a political power remember that this dragon is standing before the woman about to devour that child as soon as it was born so what nation did that 
dragon actually represent in that time period? Pagan Rome. And this is very interesting because in the same verse it also says the tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. We understand that to mean that Satan drew one third of the angels from heaven also. But based on Daniel 8, it also says a host of heaven and the stars and cast the stars to the ground. And the woman of Revelation 12 had a crown of 12 stars. You remember that. And the 12 stars represents the 12 patriarchs, meaning the leaders of God's ancient church in the Old Testament, and also represents the 12 apostles, representing his 12 leaders of the new Christian church in the New Testament. So stars also represent the leader, the leaders of God's people. Because based on verse 4, with the dual application, it must be dual application all the way, not just part way. This, the dragon, it drew 12 or one third of the angels of heaven and cast them to the, to the earth. And the dragon symbolically, Satan was symbolically, literally trying to kill Jesus. But specifically, um, the symbol that it represented, the actual political power that the dragon used, or the dragon represented, was pagan Rome. And he literally tried to kill Jesus when he was born. Therefore, he literally also cast, perhaps one-third, I haven't heard any historical evidence, but it very well could be, of the Jewish leaders to the earth. So based on that, Daniel chapter 8, and verse 10, it waxed great even to the host of heaven. The host simply means army of heaven. So God's army or his people. It reached the pleasant land. It reached the people of God. It cast down the stars to the ground and stamped on them, meaning the leaders of God's hosts. So this political power specifically came to Jerusalem, the pleasant land, Israel, to the host or God's people. Captured the leaders cast them to the ground. And we do have historical evidence of that. They did cast down the Jewish leaders and place Roman leaders in their positions. And so, we see verse 10, that represents political Rome, pagan Rome, coming to the nation of Israel, capturing them. Verse 11, let's look at the first part. And he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. Now, without going into too much detail, Let's just describe, let's just find out who this prince of the host is. Let's look at a few verses. Verse 25. Can someone read that? Verse, chapter 8, verse 25. He will cause the seed to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. And if that's superior, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be dispersed and not by him bound. So the prince of the host is also called the prince of princes. That makes it a little bit more clear. Let's look in verse uh, chapter 9 to see who the prince of princes are, is. Verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall remain in trouble and So who is the prince of princes? Another name for him is the Messiah. So this, this little horn power 
raises up against itself, magnifies itself against the Messiah himself. And this, perhaps there's dual application. We already established this nation must be kingdom of Rome. It comes after the Greece empire. But this is very interesting because the, pa- the pagan political power of Rome raised itself or magnified itself against the Messiah by crucifying him, claiming to have the power to take the life of the Son of God. But the papal power of Rome magnified itself against Christ by being making itself equal with Christ. So, the rest of the description is more about the difference or the second phase of the little horn. Simply put, we're going to cover this more next week. The little horn power represents the pagan and the papal phases of the kingdom of Rome. The little horn represents both phases. Rome in both of its phases. Pagan first and then papal. And the reason for that we'll have to describe or talk about next time. How it switches and what's the difference and when it switches. But now let's take a break from the first part of this prophecy and go to the last part and look at the explanation of this portion of the vision. Let's look in verse 23 and we'll read until verse 25. Chapter 8, yes. Okay. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands and answers things. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive, and, the, and sh- he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Okay, that's good. We already read verse 25. I just realized I missed some a very crucial series of texts. This is back to Messiah the Prince. Okay, the Prince. Let's look in Psalms 2. Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2. We'll come back to chapter 8 in a minute. Now, my version, she, her version just simply said nations, but my, na- my translation it's, adds a little more. It says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? That's in verse 1. So remember that, heathen. Now let's look in Acts. Acts verse, uh, chapter 4. Now this is a very interesting series of verses because um, in chapter 2 it's talking about, or Psalm 2, it's talking about people plotting against the anointed. In Hebrew, the word anointed, or the word Messiah's definition is anointed. And in the Greek, it's Christ. It means anointed. Now, who specifically fulfilled that psalm, that prophecy? Let's look. In verse uh, 24, no, 25, 25 to verse 27. 
we're talking about the heathen. Acts 4. Acts 4, 25 to 27. Go ahead. By the mouth of my servant David, I said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. So, specifically, who are the, who are the heathen? Specifically described by Psalm 2. The kings, Pontius Pilate and Herod. And what nation did they represent? The kingdom of pagan Rome. And we also see in chapter 8 that this nation magnified itself against the prince, Messiah the prince. And we see direct just from the Bible, without even going to history, without even going to the Gospels, we can see this nation specifically fulfilled that description. Now, let's go now to the verses we read earlier that Lorinda read for us. Daniel 8, verse 23. It says, And in the latter time of their kingdom... Now, which kingdom is their kingdom, based on previous verse? Which one, Joey? The four, exactly right. Based on verse 22, it says four stood up for it, four kingdoms. In the latter time of their kingdom, so therefore this must be near the end of the previous kingdom. Not in the middle, not in the beginning, at the end when it's about to pass off the scene. In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Now, we're not going to try to break it all down just yet. I want, to, I want you to look with me in a prophecy, I guess, or a warning in Deuteronomy given by Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now let me, di- let me just explain to you what this chapter is about. The beginning portion of this chapter is going over all of the blessings that the Lord will bestow upon His people if they obey Him, if they listen to His word, if they fulfill His commandments and so forth. But then, beginning in verse 15, it says, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all His commandments and His statutes, I command thee this day, then all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. So from verse 15 all the way until the end of chapter 28, Moses is describing the curses that will come upon God's people if they continue, if they choose to disobey Him. So that is the context. That is the whole purpose of this chapter. And it is in this chapter that we see the term fierce countenance or nation of fierce countenance. But let's read the whole section. I want you, okay, before we read the whole section, I just want you to keep this in mind. When you read this section of this chapter, think in your mind, what event does this sound a whole lot like? What event does it seem like this passage is describing? Okay, so Deuteronomy 28, verse 48 to verse 58. So we have 10 verses, or 11 verses. If someone can read that all through, straight through for us. 
and we'll discuss it at. That's correct. One more verse. Okay. This is a pretty gruesome description of what will happen to God's people if they choose to disobey Him. So, what event does that sound like that you've read about in history or heard about? Exactly. A.D. 70, the city was laid siege about, and Josephus, the historian, literally he said that parents ate their own children. They would snatch children from other people's arms and cook them and eat them during the time of the siege. And the people of, you know, the armies of Rome came and destroyed and sacked the city of Jerusalem. Exactly as this prophecy way back in the times of Moses foretold. And what is this nation called? What is, the, what is the name? Verse 50. In my version it says, A nation of fierce countenance. And I've looked and this is the only place that this description, fierce countenance, is used. It simply must be the kingdom of Rome. The pagan power, pagan political power of Rome coming, besieging God's people, so that the famine is so great that people would eat their own children, eat their own flesh. But let's, let's look at a few more descriptions. It says, when the transgressors are come to full. Now, what's the definition of transgressor? A sinner? Is that what you said? More specifically, break that down a little bit more. What is sin? Disobeying the law. So when the transgressors or when the people 
disobey God to the full, then the king of fear's countenance will come. So who is who are the transgressors? The transgressors specifically, what nation? That's the nation of Israel. We're not talking about some sort of pagan nation out there or some you know, weird country in Africa. It's talking about God's people. When their transgression is come to full, then the king of fierce countenance will come and pay their punishment. And it's interesting. It says that put upon you a yoke of iron, which is the description given to Rome. And also it says a nation, it specifically says a nation whose tongue you shall not understand. That's in Deuteronomy 28. And then Daniel 8, it says, understanding dark sentences. Now this is very interesting, and that is that all the previous nations that overtook Israel, like Air, um, Babylon, they spoke Aramaic. And that language was actually used sometime in Judea. Jesus, when he came on this earth, he spoke Aramaic. And the kingdom of Medo-Persia came and they spoke the same language. And then Greece came and we know that all the New Testament books, Paul and Peter and James, they all wrote in Greek. These are languages that all were known by the people of God. However, Latin, the ancient language of the Romans, it's nothing, anything remotely similar to Hebrew or anything that they've ever used before. So this kingdom came understanding dark sentences, speaking a language that they had no idea about. They've never spoken before. So these descriptions make it so clear that the king of fierce countenance, which is actually the little horn power, because we see it comes after the four horns, this simply must be the kingdom of Rome. Now, we're not going to be able to go through all of it. We still have a lot to cover. But let's just say this. We're going to touch on this again. But let's conclude with this. Daniel, I'm sure, was very familiar with Bible prophecy. Very familiar. In fact, in chapter 7, or chapter 8, uh, no, chapter 9, in the beginning of chapter 9, he says he studied the prophecies of Jeremiah. We'll cover that when we get to chapter 9. But Daniel, he knew the, I'm sure he knew the stipulations of disobeying God found in Deuteronomy 28. He must have been sure because he himself was in this time of, of persecution. He himself was in captivity. So I'm sure he studied that to see you know, what can we do to come out of this terrible situation. So Daniel, I'm sure, he knew in his mind when God said, King of fierce countenance, he automatically knew in his mind this is talking about Deuteronomy 28. Perhaps it's not called that. But he knew exactly that this, that this king of fierce countenance was come as a method of punishing God's people. And he knew immediately, I'm sure, there will be a siege, famine in the land, fathers and mothers will eat their children, you know, delicate men and women will eat, you know, eat other people, cannibalism, and they will eat themselves, and the walls will fall. Daniel in his mind was thinking all of this, oh my, the king of fierce countenance will come. But fortunately, at the end of the end of chapter eight, it says, "But he shall be broken without hands." But let's look at the final verses. Let's just look at this. 
This is a little preview for next week to whet your appetite here. Verse 25, it says, This king of fierce countenance, he shall stand up against the prince of princes. We know that's Christ. But he shall be broken without hands. So, fortunately, God said he will be broken without hands. However, verse 26, it says, And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore shall the vision, for it shall be for many days. Now, what is the vision of the evening and the morning? Exactly, 2300 days, Daniel 8.14. And it says, Unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, let me, let me ask you something. This is the angel, or whoever is interpreting this vision to Daniel, he's saying, Daniel, the king of your countenance will come. And in Daniel's mind, he knew that's a punishment for God's people's transgression. And he knew that that's when the transgression has come to the full, which means they reach the limit of God's mercy. He knew that. So Daniel, he's sitting there, like, king of fierce countenance. And then the interpreter says, he goes through the description, but he says, don't worry, it will be broken without hands. However, the vision of the evening and the morning is true. Seal up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So Daniel's thinking, king of fierce countenance is coming, and the vision of the 2300 days, or the 2300 evening and mornings, or 2300 Day of Atonement. The 2300, because the cleansing of the sanctuary is talking about Day of Atonement. He's thinking, it will take another 2,300 Day of Atonements before God will deliver His people from the King of His countenance. This is what's going through Daniel's mind. Can you imagine what he must have thought? He must have felt, whoa, Lord, this can't be true. It's too long. How can, how can you keep your people in captivity for 2,300 years before you restore them? How could that be? This is what's going through the mind of Daniel. But we will, we will explain this even more in the following weeks. Next week and when we get into Daniel chapter 9. Because this is the key that connects the 70 weeks of chapter 9 to 2300 days of chapter 8. So keep that in mind. This is what's going through Daniel's mind. He's shocked. 2,300 years. Lord, something must be wrong. But, that's a preview of next time. But now, today, what we've established, the first three beasts and the little horn. Or, the two beasts and the third kingdom, which is the little horn. The ram is Medo-Persia. It's clear. The goat is Greece. That's clear. The king is Alexander Great. That's clear. The four horns that come out, the four generals or four kings. That's clear. And out of one of those horns comes a little horn, which I believe to be supported by the scripture as well, to be pagan and papal phase, phases of the Roman Empire. But more specifically, we want to understand the, different, the difference and the switch between the two and what that has to do with the 2300 days in Daniel 8.14. So let's keep our minds sharp as we continue to study. And if you have any questions, we'll take them after we pray. Why don't we kneel now to close. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this 
incredible prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. There's so much yet to study and so much we don't know. But send your spirit to teach us, Lord, and help us to remain humble and teachable. Lord, as we see that you have uh, shared such tremendous truth to your servant Daniel so that he even got sick and he was scared and worried. Lord, we know that in the midst of all this, it is your mercy and grace and love for a lost world. So help us, Lord, to see your character through these prophecies and help us to better understand your plan of salvation for us so that we may be saved when the time has come. And Lord, help us to keep our gaze upon you as we, uh, as we live, as we work, and as we go throughout this following week. We love you, Lord. Protect us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.